I'm, I'm really, gosh, tonight's lesson is just for me. I got a, a real glimpse of the Lord on Sunday. Um, I don't know how much all of you know about my testimony. I, I lose track of who knows what, and so I, I really just don't hide anything. Uh, I might have even talked about this last week. Who even knows? But I am 12 years sober. Uh, tomorrow's October, so it'll be October. 12 years sober in October. And it's 100% the Lord. Thank you if that applause is for the Lord. Absolutely. But I get asked to share my testimony every now and then, and this past Sunday I had the opportunity to do that right here at Rock Point over at our Parker Square campus, and so I shared about 10 or 15 minutes worth of my story, which is just such a grain of sand on the beach that is Rebecca's, you know, checkered past. But I shared the grain of sand, and in the third service, one of the girls, Brandy, who's on staff here at the church, came up to me and said, there's someone I want you to meet after the service. And I said, okay. And that was it. Just didn't know any backstory. Um, and I'm sitting right there on the front row, very close to where Jessica is. And I'm the only one on the front row because I need to be right by the stairs so I can get up to the stage. And someone comes in and sits by me and sits like right next to me. So imagine a whole open row, but there's a chair right next to me and that's the one she chooses. And then she had a coffee and she put it so close to my foot that I actually thought maybe she brought it for me and I got very excited until she, she took a sip. It was not for me, but she, she was right next to me. And I just had this sense, I bet this is the girl. I bet this is the girl. And she got up and then she came back and she got up and then she came back and then I got up and shared and sat down. And when I sat down, she turned to me and she said, I'm an addict. And I said, I'm so glad you're here. And she said, I'm so glad you're here. And then they played a response song. And this girl started to sob, like chest heaving, racked with sobs. And I got to put my arm around her and as soon as I did, she turned into my chest like a child would. And I held her like this with one hand over her head and the other one around her. And she just sobbed and sobbed. And I got to witness the Lord do a work in this girl who hadn't been in church for three years and who just couldn't get her life together. She was so broken. And then I got to see something even more beautiful. I got to see the women of this church rush on her with so much love. Uh, Lauren Etter. Um, hugged her and prayed over her. We got her information. It was really just a beautiful thing. And the reason I'm, I'm sharing this story is because God prompted an addict to go into a church that doesn't really look like a church from the outside on the very morning that an addict was sharing her story. I think we're all gonna be all right. God is sovereign and God is very much in charge and he knows what he's doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for grace. We thank you for the grace to be here tonight, God. We are dependent, in fact, desperate for your grace, Lord God. And so I ask that you would just fill each of us with the knowledge of you, that you would speak to us as we study. Um, Lord, I pray that my words would please you and honor you. But Lord, I do ask that the greatest moments 
uh, we receive are when it's just us and you as we work our own way through the text, that you would reveal things to us, Lord, that are just for us, that you would whisper things to us that are for our ears and our hearts only, and that you would reward our hard work as we seek to know you more, Lord God. So speak to us now, Father God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, something I forgot to mention last week is that I would prefer you not use commentaries or study notes. And the primary reason for that is it's not because I get terribly um, concerned that you won't like what I wrote. You either will or you won't. But And I, it's not that I want you fact-checking my work. I actually do want you to do that. I just don't want you to do it till after the teaching. And here's the biggest reason. It's because this you will learn it more if you wrestle through the I don't know and instead of just giving yourself the answer immediately. We're, we're kind of an instant gratification society. And what we've done is we've, with our big, beautiful study Bibles full of all these wonderful notes, we have dragged that desire for instant gratification into Bible study. And instead of really like wrestling with what we're reading and really wrestling with God, we're just looking at what someone else says, we're taking it as truth and we're going on. And so you will have a better Bible study experience if you refrain from using your study notes or your commentaries until after the lecture. So um, today, uh, I'm sorry, this past week, we read the whole book of Philippians in one sitting. Um, and, and I have you do that on the first day of every single week of the homework. So by the time we're done, you'll have read through it five or six times in one sitting. But then I had you go through and I asked you to make a list of about 20 observations. Did anyone have a, a difficult time coming up with 20 observations? Yeah, this is hard. It's hard. And I remember the very first time uh, I was in a, a class at Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the things they had us do was take Acts 1-8, I think it's 1-8, one verse, and we had to come up with 25 observations out of one verse. And then we turned that in and they were like, give us 25 more. And so it's hard. It's really hard. And you guys had 11 whole verses to work with. There's a very specific reason I'm asking you to do that. Because we have to retrain ourselves how to read for comprehension. When we were in elementary school, we would sit around and everyone would take turns reading. And when you read aloud, it forces you to slow down and think a little bit about the words. And then what would the teacher do? She'd ask the class questions about what you read, and that's how we test for comprehension. But we sort of, we, we sort of um, I don't know that we lose that skill, we just get too busy. And so what we tend to do is we just, especially if you've grown up in the church and you've read Philippians 5,000 times, we tend to just read it. We already know what it's gonna say. We're not too terribly concerned. We wanna get to the next part so we can get to the question so we can get on with our day. But what I want us to do, and I'm doing it right along with you, is I want us to force ourselves to slow down and really think about what the words are saying, because if we don't, we'll do this. Who's ever been reading a book, even if it's a really good book, and you turn a page and you realize, I have no idea what I just read. No idea what I've just read. We do it all the time. It's because we're busy, and it's because we can't help it. But so I had you do 20 observations, and to... Um, and so I'm hoping that that was fruitful for you and that that's something that you will keep up because that is a big principle of Bible study. It's called simply observing the text. You are just making notes 
of what you read. You're just calling out the facts. So tonight we're looking at the opening of Paul's letter. We're gonna read through verses one through 11, and then we're just gonna sort of pick it apart, and that's what you do in inductive Bible study. You just go through line by line, and you talk about what the words actually say, then we talk about what the words actually mean, and then we talk about what it means for us as we go throughout our lives. So in verses one through two, we have a greeting, very standard for ancient Near Eastern literature. And then we have verses three through 11, which make up a prayer for Thanksgiving. So I'm gonna read it to you in the New English Translation, which you have in the back of your workbook. It's also going to be up on the screens. Paul starts out like this, from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's favorite way to open a letter. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I forgot I am running my own slides. Okay, wait a minute. Where are we? Is this the right one? Till the day of Christ Jesus, we're in the right spot. Okay. For it is right for me to think this about all of you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners in God's grace together with me. For God is my witness that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, we're starting with the first line, Philippians 1.1, from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. So the, the first thing that we see here is that this letter has dual attribution, two authors, Paul and Timothy. But then you will notice as you read through the rest of the letter that Paul is talking in what? First person, singular. This is not we, it's I. It's, it is just Paul. He's speaking in the first person. So why did he make it from Timothy 2? Well, there's a couple reasons most likely that Paul did this. First, it's safe to assume that Timothy was Paul's secretary. He was certainly Paul's disciple. Now, in some of Paul's letters, he calls Timothy his son in the faith, which means that Timothy traveled with him, learned from him, uh, imitated him. It meant that Timothy was Paul's disciple. And as Paul's secretary, he would have traveled with Paul. He would have made the arrangements for Paul's accommodations. And in all likelihood, he also served as Paul's scribe, writing his letters for him. We have a whole lot of reasons to believe that Paul's eyesight was very poor, if not just gone. Um, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote 
that he knew that if the Christians in Galatia could, they would actually pluck their own eyes out and give them to Paul. At the end of the same letter, Paul signs it and says, see what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So he's calling attention to the fact that the signature was different. He does something very similar in 2 Thessalonians and Philemon. So we can assume that Paul's eyesight is very poor and therefore it's Timothy writing the physical letter. But I also think that Paul's making a case for Timothy because Timothy was there at the beginning and Timothy will also play a very large role at the church in Ephesus. And I think what Paul is doing is he is establishing Timothy as an authority figure and making sure that Timothy carries the same weight the same res- or, and is worthy of the same respect that Paul receives. It says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And we looked at this pretty carefully in our homework, didn't we? Um, If your normal Bible is the NIV, ESV, or CSB, your translation says servants. If you use the King James, the New King James, or the NASB, your translation says bond servants. So we've got three words to wrestle with. We've got servant, slave, bond servant. So what's the proper definition? Well, let's talk about definitions. So a servant, by definition, is someone who receives wages for their work. Um, This is all over the New Testament. We see the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20. A, A man goes out to hire workers for his vineyard. He hires them at three different times throughout the day. And at the end of the day, what does he do? He pays them the wages. He pays them all for a day's worth of work. So that's service. That's a servant. What is a bond servant? What is a bond servant? You've probably all heard one definition or another because as Christians, we are really uncomfortable with slave language, aren't we? Like we don't like that here in the West at all. We, we try to stay away from that. So somewhere along the way, the term bond servant was coined and I'll tell you where it came from. It came from Exodus 21, five through six, which says, if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. And then he will be his servant for life. And from this passage, we've gotten this definition that a bond servant is someone who chooses to be a servant. But here's the problem. The, the term bond servant doesn't exist in Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in, and it doesn't exist in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. That is a word of our own creation. So in your homework, I had you take a good hard look at the word that we see translated to servant, bond servant, or slave, and that's the word doulos, and doulos always means slave. And a lot of times in Bible translation, what we have to do when we have a word and we're not quite sure what to do with it is we go back to other ancient works of literature, like the works of Josephus, Tacitus, um, a bunch of other historians from the 8th century BC and on, and we see how they use this word. There are no occasions of doulos being used as anything other than slave. And that has some big implications because what we have to do before we can understand what this word means in our context, we have to understand what it means in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul wrote. And the Greco-Roman world in which Paul wrote is an honor-shame society. 
we're not an honor-shame society. In an honor-shame society, which you still find, you will find that in pockets of Asia, some pockets of Europe, um, India, which is part of Asia, obviously, but, but in um, families that are more patriarchal, your individual rights are secondary. Here in the United States, our individual rights are primary and our happiness is our highest, right? That's our utmost goal in life, or at least that's what we're told. We're not a communal society. We're not an honor-shame society. We do shameful things all the time and, and it just doesn't matter. It doesn't ding us. It doesn't damage our reputation. But in an honor-shame-driven society, they have honor killings if someone brings shame on a family name. And if you're ranking people in society, where is a slave? Paul has made himself and Timothy the lowest of the low in an honor-shame-driven society, which would have carried heavy social implications. They were at the bottom of the social hierarchy. So slaves didn't have rights. Slaves didn't have freedom. Slaves didn't get vacation. They didn't get sick days. Slaves never got paid, okay? They got things in exchange for their service. Oftentimes, like, um, they would get clothing. And there are occasions, um, in, certainly in uh, the Roman Empire, where the slaves were treated very, very well, and they had positions like doctors and things like that. That was not normative, though. That was not normative. Um, slaves didn't own their own bodies. Slaves were not allowed to say no. Female slaves were not allowed to say no. Little boy slaves, little girls, they're not allowed to say no. They don't have that right. If a slave had children, those aren't their children. They belong to their master. And this is a really big deal because one of the benefits of Roman citizenship, and we're gonna talk a lot about citizenship as we get further into Philippians, but one of the big benefits of Roman citizenship was you owned your body. Like no one would just come up to you and touch you, which would have been so hard for me, a neck hugger, not just a hugger, but like, oh, I, I, I go in, I go for it. But they didn't do that in this society because that was a shameful thing to do to someone's body. Why? Because slaves didn't have rights over their body, so anyone could touch them or jerk them all around, but not if you were a Roman citizen. So Paul and Timothy, Roman citizens, have just made themselves slaves, so when Paul says this of himself and Timothy, what is he saying? He's saying that they are slaves of Christ. They're saying their whole being belongs to Christ. They have turned over their will. They have turned over their desires. They have turned over their rights. They have turned over their freedom. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus saying, if anyone, anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. If we're gonna take up our cross, what do we have to do first? We gotta put all our stuff down. We gotta have empty hands if we're gonna pick up a cross and follow Jesus. In the homework we had you go through the salutations, the greetings of nine other letters. Did you notice a big difference there? There's a big difference in the way that Paul greets these nine other churches, the way he introduces himself, as opposed to the book of Philippians. In those letters, Paul described himself as a what? An apostle, yeah. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And sometimes he said a slave of Christ, but he fronted it with apostle. So apostle was a weighty title, 
That, that carried some dignity with it because the, as, as Christianity was spreading, people knew of the 12. They knew about Peter and James and John. And then there was Mark who went down to Alexandria and Egypt. And there was Philip who went, I mean, so the, the apostles were very respected. So why would Paul call himself apostle in so many of his other letters, but not here with the Philippians? Well, last week I told you we saw no sign of angry Paul in this letter, like at all. He, he has like a sentence or two for Yodia and Syntyche, but that's it. If you read through the other letters, you'll see that when Paul uses the term apostle, he is writing to a church that he has not visited yet, and he needs to put the letters in front of his name, right? He needs these people to know that he is qualified and called, or he's addressing false teaching or misbehavior in the church. When he says he's an apostle, he's establishing his authority. He's like, no, you will call me doctor, right? But not here. He doesn't do that with the Philippians. The Philippians were a group of believers who were very familiar with Paul and his teaching. And when Paul addresses them, he makes himself lower than them in an act of great humility. And who is he imitating? He's imitating Christ, and this is preparation for what we're going to read in chapter two, verses six through 11, the great Christ hymn, the great emptying out where the highest became the lowest, where the king of all kings made himself slave of all. And so Paul is kind of priming the pump as he describes himself only as a slave, and I also think that Paul is instigating and ushering in a new kind of leadership because in a colony of Rome in Philippi, all right, where it's emperor worship and people are always pushing people down so they can climb up, what is Paul doing? He's saying, no, no, we live by dying. We lead by serving. That's what he's doing. And then Paul writes his letters to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Let's talk just a little bit about what it means to be a saint. If you use a New International Version, an NIV or an NLT, your translation will say holy people. And we looked at the Greek word hagias, which is an adjective, all right, describing an item or a person dedicated and consecrated to God. And then I had you look at Exodus chapter 40 to see all of the objects that God instructed Moses to make holy, to consecrate, to sanctify um, when the Israelites were constructing the tabernacle. If you want to go there, it's on page 26 of your workbook, but I'm going to list you, I'm going to give you a list of everything that had to be made holy in order for God's presence to fill the tabernacle. First off, it just says the tabernacle and everything in it. That is pretty comprehensive. All the furniture, the altar, all of its utensils, the basin, the basin stand, Aaron, his sons, their garments. Now, I want you to think about this, okay? Because I had to stop down on this and, and really think about it. When you think about God instructing the Israelites to make the tabernacle, he did that for a very specific reason. God's plan has always been that he would dwell with his people, okay? That's always been the plan from day one, all the way back in Eden when God dwelled with Adam and Eve, okay? So the tabernacle was a mobile temple that they would build and tear down and build and tear down. The objects that the tabernacle were made out of are inanimate objects, right? I mean, 
We're talking about a basin. We're talking about hammered out metal. We're talking about fabric. We're talking about nails. We're talking about things that's stuff. Objects. Objects cannot make mistakes. Objects can't sin. Objects can't make bad choices. I understand why I need to be made holy. All right? If you even knew my day, if you even knew. I understand why I need consecrating and sanctification. I understand that all day long. But why would this, right? Why would this stage? God's holiness is so thorough and so complete that in every single case in scripture, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Revelation, when people are confronted with the Shekinah glory of God, which is God in his essence, they fall down on the ground as dead. This is giving us a picture of just how devastating our sin is. Sin doesn't just affect us. It affects everything and everyone around us, doesn't it? And when Adam and Eve broke fellowship with God, we just, we, we laugh about it. Ah, they ate a bite of a fruit. Ah, God had a plan. No, it ruined everything. It broke everything. Even the objects, the inanimate objects used to build the tabernacle had to be consecrated and made holy so that God could fill the temple. Their sin broke the entire creation. Paul wrote this in Romans, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. What is decay? It's unclean and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Listen to this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. No wonder we're all such a hot mess, right? No wonder. The whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. And yet, and yet, God loves his creation. He loves us so much that he has made a way for not just objects, but also us. And we do make mistakes and we do sin and we do run the wrong way and we do make terrible choices. He's made a way for us to be called holy. We are the saints. We are the saints. We are the consecrated ones set apart for God. How? How does that work? Because God's holiness is so pure and perfect that it can't be in the same place as sin. So God is perfectly holy. We're perfectly not, all right? And we can't get to God by ourselves. We can't build a bridge that big. We need someone who will stand in front of God and mediate for us. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been through mediation, but a mediator is not a lawyer. A mediator is not 
arguing on your behalf or the other person's behalf, the mediator is there to mediate, to work things out, to find that middle ground because the mediator has to be on middle ground. It has to represent both parties. So the only one who can stand in the presence of a holy God who's so holy that the basin and its stand have to be consecrated is one like God. But the only one who can stand in for us, who can also represent us, has to be one of us. And so God did the unthinkable. He became one of us. He became one of us. God so loved the world that he sent his son, who was 100% God, 100% God, to stand on behalf of man. And he became 100% man. The math doesn't add up. The math doesn't even add up. But nothing's impossible with God, right? And the one who said, let there be light, learned how to talk. That's amazing. The author of wisdom learned how to read. That's mind-blowing. The author of strength learned how to walk and toddle around. And he lived a holy life. He lived a holy life. And when he went to the cross, he went in his perfection and his innocence. He never lied. He never lusted. He never laid hands on a woman in a harmful or abusive way. But he took the punishment for every time we lied. Every time we've blurred the lines every time we've lusted, every time we've acted out in anger or frustration. And now he stands in front of God. And when someone who believes in Jesus and still can't get it right has to stand before God, Jesus says, that one's mine. That one's mine. No, no, she's mine. No, she's mine too. No, no, they're mine. They're mine. God stepped off the throne into skin, onto a cross so that he could absorb his own wrath toward us and so that we could become holy, so that we could call ourselves holy. And we got the better end of that deal. Paul's letter is to all the saints in Philippi, along with the overseers and deacons. And in the homework, I asked you why this little detail would be included, what these offices meant for us. And it just tells us that this is an established, organized church. All right, it had order and structure in place. We know that at the writing of this letter, the church was probably 10 years old, and they had an orderly, organized structure in place. And now we begin with the body of Paul's letter. And oh my gosh, I just need to memorize all of these words. They're so beautiful. He says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, God originated the participation trophy. And we shall not take it away from ourselves. 
For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know what your workbook looks like, but mine is all marked up with all the yellow, all the green, and all of the orange because God's themes, or the the book's themes, are all over this of unity and friendship and joy. Um, The Philippian believers are beloved by Paul. He adores them. He considers them family. And in verse six, he says this, I am sure of this very thing that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So first things first, who is the one who began a good work in them? God through his Holy Spirit, God through his Holy Spirit. And what was the good work he began in them? This is kingdom expansion work. This is the work of the gospel. This is why he makes us holy. This is why he sets us apart. And what will God continue to do until the day of Christ Jesus? He will continue to perfect his good work. Now, why is this good news? This is such good news for me. This is such good news for me. Because it tells us that God is a God who finishes what he starts. Let me tell you something. Mike and I moved into our second house in Flower Mound, the house where we are right now in 2008. And we had like a three-day window where we could get all this stuff done, okay? So we had three days where the old family was out before we moved in and we had permission to let the painters and the contractors and everyone in. And so we hired a painter to paint just about every single room in the house. But we, <laughs> we got to this hallway in this bathroom downstairs and the, we were already so over budget. And so I freaked out. All right. I just freaked out. I was like, no more painting, no more painting. We're done. We're done. And so this hallway and this bathroom downstairs, I decided I would do. Well, I never got around to the hallway, but I did, I, I did start the bathroom. I, I painted it this really cool rusty red and uh, all except for this one spot above the cabinet over the toilet. It's, uh, you know, like 10 foot ceilings or whatever. And it was just this big, probably two by three foot square area that just never got paint. And, uh, It just never did until we hired painters last summer to finally come in and finish the job. Now, I could have done it. We have a ladder, but Mike wasn't home and I don't, it's big and bulky and I just thought I'd get to it later. And um, what year is it? Yeah, in 2020, we finally did. So that's because I am a woman who does not always finish what she starts. I do not always finish what I start, but God always finishes what he starts. And we know that because we are standing on the shoulders of our Philippian brothers and sisters. Because of the work of the people in the New Testament, the gospel has reached all of Africa, all of North America, all of South America, all of Europe, all of Asia. Now there still are unreached pockets of people groups around the world, but the gospel is global because God's the one behind it, because God is a God who finishes what he starts. He uses us in his plan, but in no way, shape, or form does his plan depend on us. Now, next week, we'll talk about a right perspective on our lives and the kingdom, but for now, I just want to say this. I think one of the reasons that we worry and struggle so much is because we have forgotten that it doesn't all rest on our shoulders, I mean, especially as women, am I wrong? I mean, are we not the ones organizing and keeping track and running calendars and getting kids here and getting doing this and doing that? And I mean, we we are go-getters, we are doers and we fall into this trap of thinking, well, I can't quit because if I quit or if I take a sick day, it's just not gonna get done. If it doesn't get done, we drive ourselves crazy. We drive ourselves crazy. 
but we're not the ones holding it all together. I didn't know that girl was going to come in. I didn't know who she was because Brandy warned me when someone sat down. She didn't even warn me. She just said, there's someone I want you to sit next to or speak to after the service. But God called an addict off the street into a church that doesn't look like a church from the outside in Parker Square and sat her next to an addict that shared her testimony. I mean, God uses us because he loves us. But he doesn't need us and it's not gonna fall apart if we fall down on the job. It's really, it's, it's not about us. And if we can train ourselves, we, de- we default to this because we're human and we're stuck in our own heads. But if we can train ourselves to take us out of the center of our own story and live outward for others and for Christ, well, then it doesn't matter if it doesn't go right. It doesn't matter if it goes the way we thought it was going to. I didn't anticipate that I would be staying after the service 20 minutes loving on a girl who hadn't been in church in three years. But golly, I'm glad I was there. I'm so glad I was there. God's doing just fine. You know, we can't see around the corners and it drives us a little bit crazy. God's already there and he has already deposited the grace and the wisdom and the strength and the resources and the people that you are going to need when you get there. It's not gonna give it to us beforehand, but it's gonna be there when you need it. Verse seven, for it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. All of you became partners in God's grace together with me for God is my witness that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's go back to verse seven. It tells us why, I'm sorry, it tells us where Paul is as he writes this letter. So Paul is most likely in Rome. He is imprisoned because he will not stop sharing the gospel. He will not stop. He was under house arrest, chained to a guard, and he was afforded certain privileges because the one overseeing his imprisonment did not see him as a particularly great threat. Old blind guy, not too terribly worried about him. Now, there is an excellent chance. You wanna talk about God's providence? There's an excellent chance. And Paul's probably sitting in Emperor Nero's house. It's a possibility. It's a possibility that he is in Caesar's household. And there is an, I would argue that there is a close to certainty that his overseer and the officer he was chained to were Christians, that they followed Christ, either because of Paul or already had heard the gospel. But the very fact that Paul was allowed to dictate this letter and that the, the letter was allowed to be delivered tells me that there were people working on the inside. Verse eight tells us that he longs for the Philippians with the very affection of Christ Jesus. So in your homework, we took a a look at the word splachnan, and that's how you say it. It's splachnan. Here it's translated as affection, but as you saw in your homework, this is actually body parts. This is the word for guts and intestines. And I just kind of love the fact that in Paul's day, they attributed psychological function to the inner organs. Um, And so this isn't just like, this isn't just, this isn't, 
isn't just deep affection. This is, oh my gosh, how are you? I've missed you. Come here. This is embracing your child after they've been away at college for six months. This is seeing your husband after he's been deployed for 18 months. This is a love that just twists your guts and causes you to sacrifice and sweat and worry and stay up late. This is a twisting of the innards kind of emotion that forces you almost into action. This is the love Christ has for us. In fact, this is the word most often used to describe Christ in the New Testament. Paul loves these Philippians with a gut-wrenching love. And in verse nine, he prays that their love would abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight. This is so fun here. What does Paul mean when he says he wants their love to abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight? So we have to ask knowledge of what? Insight of what? Let's talk about love. So I met Mike, my husband, back in 2002. We met at the gym and so neither one of us were cute when we met each other. We were all sweaty and yucky. Um, and I thought he was really nice, like just the nicest guy ever. And if you know Mike, he's so nice. Um, and I went on a date with him primarily because I didn't want to hurt his feelings because he was such a nice guy and I liked being friends with him. But we went out on that first date and I got to know him a little bit and I will be darned, I really liked him. I had so much fun. And the more time I spent with him, and the more I got to know him, the more I liked him until that deepened into love. And we married in 2004, July 17th. And when I walked down that aisle and I saw him, I thought, God, I'm never gonna love him more than I do right now in this moment. I love him so much. Well, I was wrong. I was wrong about that. Every year that passes, I know my husband more and more. If someone tells a joke, I can tell you that he'll probably laugh, even if it's not funny, just because he's nice. Um, I can tell you if it's his sincere laugh or if it's his just being nice laugh, because they're different. Uh, I can tell by the way he answers the phone or by the way he walks in and greets me. And it's the same every single time, but I can just tell by his tone if it's been a good day or a bad day. I love him so much more now than I did on the day I married him. I have just never heard it stated better than this. Jen Wilkins says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. If all we know about Jesus is what other people have said about him, we don't love him. We, we just can't. We love the idea of him. We love that this will get us into heaven, right? But we don't really love him. Now, the word Paul uses for knowledge is epigenosis. Gnosis means knowledge, all right? There are two Greek words used for knowledge in the New Testament. One is gnosis. The other is oida, okay? Oida means you know of something, like you have read an article about something, you researched something. Um, it's knowing something in an intellectual sense. And if you've ever studied a historical figure like Joan of Arc or George Washington, you oida them. And all you can ever do is oida them because all you can ever do is read about them or gain intellectual knowledge 
of them. What you cannot do is you cannot gnosis them because gnosis is relational. Gnosis is experiential. It is 17, 18, I don't remember how long we've been married, years of marriage, right? It's watching your child from the day they were born and thinking you will never love anything until, you know, more than you love this creature until you say goodbye to them when they go to college and you just don't know how you're ever going to live, right? It is relational, experiential knowledge. Um, Gnosis is what Paul is talking about here, but our word is epigenosis. So epi is a prefix that acts as an intensifier. It means on, upon, pushing down, against, very near. It's a, it's a, it's a get off me kind of word. It's ah, you're too on me. That's epi. Um, and Paul is praying that their epigenosis, your super knowledge, will abound in an even more intense way. So if you were to read this, if you were just to try and go literal in the Greek, which is hard because word order doesn't matter, it would say that he prays that your love would grow and then continue to grow more and even more as your knowledge becomes super knowledge, all right? That's the thrust of this passage. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of Christ, As we get to know Christ more and more, our love for him grows more and more. And as we love Christ more and more, and as we know him with a gnosis knowledge, he gives us insight just like I have with my husband. Because when you spend time with someone and when you are making someone the object of your affections and your desires, then what happens is you become pretty well rehearsed in the way they think and the way they do things and the things they love and the things they hate. And as we start to live more in tune with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us insight about what? About each other. It's why when that girl sat down next to me, I was like, well, something's going on because that's not my coffee. I thought she was giving me coffee, but she's just here for it. So we'll just have to, we'll just have to see. And, and so what Paul is talking about here is a mature Christian love and mature Christian love takes time. And, and as we navigate an instant gratification society, we have to remember that every good gnosis relationship is going to take time. And, and, but we, we bypass that because we don't, want, we, don't, we don't want to discipline ourselves. And so instead of 30 minutes of Bible study in the morning, what do we do? We just turn on a worship song and we maybe read Jesus Calling. And, and that's, you know, that's our God time. Well, that's, that's not gnosis. That's not gnosis. And I love a good worship song. But I will tell you, so many of our worship songs make us the object of God's affections instead of God the object of ours. And they never challenge us. They never call out our sin. They never call us to grow. And so we're getting a very flimsy knowledge of the life that Christ actually wants us to live. Why does Paul want their love to grow? And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best. There's your insight. And thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. So the net translation is not my typical. I'm, I'm an NIV girl. And that word sincere just popped for me. Um, I really honed in on that. And here's why. God, I don't want to just talk the talk. I want to mean it. I don't want to have to act good. I just want to be good. I don't want to sound mature. I want to grow in maturity. I don't want to just 
walk the walk. I want to live the life. I want to get out of my own head. I want to stop worrying about my stuff and I want Christ at the center. I want to be able to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this stuff that we are so worked up about just doesn't matter because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. People matter. Christ believes people matter so much that he went to the cross for a, (laughs) a whole world of sin and he didn't commit one. The last thing I'll mention is the last line, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Fruit has to do very little. It just grows when it's fed, when it's watered, when it has the proper amount of sunlight. It just grows. It just gets produced. It doesn't have a big role in it. God is a God who finishes what he starts. He planted a seed in each one of you. And he is going to see that come to fruition, perfection, until the day of Christ Jesus, so that one day when you stand in front of God, and you will, Jesus is going to say, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know her. Yeah, she's mine. She's mine. And you will live with him in ever-increasing joy for all eternity. What are our three takeaways from these 11 beautiful verses? You are holy, you are clean, and you are forgiven. And if you've got some shame issue, if you're carrying some guilt around, you gotta deal with that because God already did. In Christ, on the cross, you are blameless. Number two, you belong to Christ. You were chosen. You are adopted. You are set apart. He is working in you. I know you're not where you want to be yet, but he's never going to quit on you. And if you've ever felt left out or rejected, you got a home in Christ. Our last one is this. We've got to grow in our gnosis, our knowledge, because as we grow in our knowledge, we will grow in our love. And as we grow in our love, we will grow in our insight toward others. And as we grow in insight toward others, we can have compassion for each other because we're all broken. We're all a hot mess, as Jessica says. We're all riding on the hot mess express. And as you gain insight, it just draws you back closer to Christ and it makes you want to press in him and know him more and then you love him more and then you get more insight and then you love him more. And then you, I mean, it's just this beautiful, endless cycle. And so as you go into the weekend and as we start our next week, I pray that you would every moment remember that you are holy, you belong, and that Jesus desires more than anything else to have a relationship with you. Heavenly Father, we just love you. We love you and thank you for calling us into this holy existence with you. Um, Help us, God, because we just need you so much. Give all of us the willpower to do our homework because it's hard, Lord. It's hard. You know it's hard. Help drag us here next week, Lord, because it's hard and there are 50 million things clamoring for our attention and they're all important and they all matter. But nothing matters more than you. Nothing matters more than you. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.